Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. The NBA season has started and teams have played five, six, and in rare cases, even seven whole games. So we know exactly how the season's going to turn out in every way. So here to talk with me about exactly what's going to happen the entire season based on this sample size is Jeremy Stevens. Jeremy, how are you today? I'm doing well because and only because basketball's on TV again. As the ringer would say, basketball is in fact very good. Love it. Let's get started on our small sample size theater podcast. Obviously, the first six to seven, maybe even five games of the season don't really say all that much other than who's been hot to start the year. But there are a few trends from the early season that always seem to carry forward through the rest of the year. So let's look into some of those small sample size trends right now. And I wanted to start with Trey Young, who obviously has missed the last couple of games with an injury, but to start the season, he was absolutely scorching hot, sort of how he was playing down the stretch of last season. But really the important part with Young is that even though he was scoring so effectively last year, he was still below average in terms of three-point accuracy. He only shot 32% from deep last year. Granted, a lot of that was because he was taking ridiculously difficult three-point shots, But so far in the early season, he's been taking those ridiculously difficult shots and hitting them at a much higher rate. Yeah, I actually, um, I like this Hawks team a lot. I've watched them a couple times so far. Unfortunately, I watched Trey Young explode his ankle. But um, this roster actually makes a lot of sense where they just have all their positions covered between, you know, Trey as a point guard, DeAndre Bembry, who I saw a little bit in college, who was kind of a wild player, seems to have refined his skills a little bit as sort of a wing forward. John Collins, obviously, veteran Vince Carter off the bench. Like everything, everything makes sense about the Hawks. They play super fast, super hard. Trey's taking easier shots, like you were kind of alluding to, might might be a sort of an indicator of as to you know why he's done better. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's weird because the East is crowded, not because it's good. It's just the same level of mediocrity, like four through nine in the conference or something. But um, they they could they could be the fourth best team, maybe. I feel like fourth is a little strong, but given the offensive potential of this team, fair enough. The big maybe. Given the offensive potential of this team, I think they could definitely sneak into the playoff picture. Really the thing with Trey Young that's going to determine sort of how his NBA future goes, he is clearly already a spectacular offensive player. His passing vision is really good, especially for someone who scores as effectively as he does. He was the worst defensive player in basketball last year by pretty much every advanced defensive metric out there. And even the non-advanced defensive metrics of watching him get absolutely destroyed anytime he tried to go over a screen, which wasn't very often. He usually didn't make the effort to go over the screen because he knew he wasn't going to get anywhere. And the thing about this Hawks team that concerns me and that concerned me before the season started, which is why I was lower than everyone else in our hashtag basketball power rankings group, I was lower on Atlanta than everyone else. And the reason for that is they have absolutely no interior defense at all whatsoever. And ultimately, if you have one offensive player who's a guaranteed defensive minus in Trey Young, you need to at least be able to do the other things well. I think DeAndre Hunter can get there, but that defense on the inside is going to be rough with John Collins and Alex Len being your starting front court. Yeah, I just looked at the standings. I'm going to say fifth. Fifth seed is the ceiling, not fourth. But um, I have one concern, and that's that Jabari Parker plays rotation minutes for this team, which means in a playoff series they're going to get 
absolutely cooked with him on the floor. Speaking of getting absolutely cooked with him on the floor, this is probably going to be your favorite part of the podcast. Kyrie Irving is currently second in the NBA in terms of points per game. Yeah. 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 And the Brooklyn Nets are having a worse season than last year because the ball isn't moving (laughs) and the defense is rough. And there have already been a few media comments of Kyrie commenting on how the youth aren't performing up to expectations. So, Jeremy, this kind of seems like your wheelhouse. (laughs) Uh, So it's funny. I actually thought the Nets would be really good because based on the first round playoff series last year, yeah, last season, I really like Dinwiddie and I really like Karis LeVert as they could be shot creators. They can kind of be catch and shoot guys. I, I would say probably average defenders at best or worst. I thought Kyrie over D'Angelo was a massive upgrade, which to be fair, that part's actually true. But watching them play is a disaster. Also, because Kyrie and Durant have extorted the entire Nets franchise from top to bottom, DeAndre Jordan has to start for this team. And he big stinks, big stink. So there's there's kind of a lot that needs to be fixed. And I watched Jay Crowder hit that game winner over them the other day. And it was maybe the happiest moment of my life. And just for clarification on that, the only recent basketball jersey in my room right now is a Jay Crowder Celtics jersey. So that's where my allegiances are. Um, bottom line with the Nets is that it's it's just, I don't even think they're that bad still. It's just really messy. And if you can't execute in those late game situations where you have a Kyrie and that's kind of what his existence is supposed to be. Yeah, I don't know. And obviously they're already dealing with like his attitude. So there's a lot of, as always with the Kyrie team, there's a lot of layers to it. But in short, I thought they would be good. They're a mess. The strange part for me is that Spencer Dinwiddie has really struggled a lot to start the early season. And part of me feels like that's not really on Kyrie at all. I mean, Spencer was one of the best sixth men in the league last year, backing up a really high usage point guard with a lesser skill set in T'Angelo Russell. It's strange to me, I guess, that I don't think this team really got a whole lot worse outside of the front court. And I guess that's kind of part of been where the issues have been because DeAndre Jordan, as you put it, has not exactly had that great of a start to the season. He has kind of looked washed for the last couple of years, and he looks super washed so far this year. So maybe it's not really on Kyrie, just in the sense that I think the front court downgrade went a little bit understated during the offseason, because the best player that they got in their front court, newsflash, isn't going to play this season. I don't think he was going to play this season even if the Nets had had a good start and looked to be in prime playoff contention. But at this point, if it's going to be, you know, playing out the string for the last few games for a lottery team, there's absolutely no way that Kevin Durant comes back this year. Cannot emphasize enough how washed Jordan is. But what's an interesting layer to this is um, we'll get to the Celtics later, but the Celtics just won a game on a game winner on the play they ran in Orlando last year. That guy Kyrie mad at everybody where he wanted the ball. And I think the next day or maybe two days later, the Nets tried to run something that is now evading me. But I guess Kyrie wanted the ball and ended up with like Joe Harris. So it's kind of like this parallel lives thing going on where we just kept running the same plays and they work now. (laughs) And then Kyrie's still complaining about. Well, the wild part is that Kenny Atkinson's actually been a really good after timeout coach for pretty much his entire run in Brooklyn. Really, the main concern with Atkinson has been that his rotations have sometimes been a little bit weird. But he's really good at that kind of 
out of timeout play stuff. And obviously he was brought in as a developmental coach. So outside of the rotations, he's been a really solid coach for Brooklyn. It just seems like something is off this year. And I just can't put my finger on what changed between this season and last season. Yeah, we might have to give it 25 games to figure out if anything's kind of fishy going on with that roster. Wait, so you're telling me that we don't know exactly who's going to be the playoff rosters in each conference and the eventual NBA champions right now after five plus games? It's just it's just too early to point fingers and point blame. That's all I'm saying. I'm, I'm sure that everyone in Boston agrees with you that it's way too early to point blame at Kyrie Irving. 100%. Let's move on to someone who's actually been a positive surprise so far this season. So after the spectacular game against the Dallas Mavericks, LeBron James has just taken over the NBA lead in assists per game, second in the league and number one until LeBron put up 16 assists in his last game, Malcolm Brogdon of the Indiana Pacers. And it's even funnier to me that he has been pretty much leading the league in assists all season because this Pacers team has been real bad on the offensive end. And it's basically been entirely Brogdon. And it's kind of funny to me because he was considered more of a combo guard, maybe not much of a player, just someone who could run the offense effectively as a second guard when he was in Milwaukee. And now that he's got the ball in his hands more in Indiana, he's pretty close to the league lead in assists, despite the fact that, again, this offense has been abysmal besides him all season long so currently i'm writing about basketball for two websites and i've written i I think at least 10 times since free agency that the bucks made a mistake paying bledsoe and paying middleton and not paying brogdon is a mistake they also offered maybe some smaller and, and less consequential contracts to i think two lopez's and a george hill None of these players are better than Malcolm Brogdon, and somehow Brogdon's the one that gets away. And yeah, the Pacers look big, terrible. Um, But I'm not the least bit surprised with Brogdon just because I think he's a really smart player. Uh, He kind of checks those boxes that all the Celtics fans will rave about with anyone where he just kind of makes the winning plays on his way to scoring like 12 points and a few assists or whatever, except now he's (laughs) it's like 10 assists or something. But um, he's a guy you can trust with the ball basically all the time. It's kind of hard to find guys like that, especially to close out close games, which is, I thought, why Milwaukee was so successful with him and Giannis on the floor is when you don't want to run a Giannis into the ground every single possession, you can give it to Brogdon. And now they don't have a backup for that. And sooner or later, the Pacers are going to get their backup. Well, no, sorry. Brogdon's going to be the backup. Oladipo will be back. So that dynamic's kind of... I I think they're going to be really good with Oladipo if he's healthy. So... uh. Yeah, I'm just not surprised that he's really good. This has already gotten a lot of play slash conversation, but I'm just going to bring it up again. If the Bucks do not win the championship in the next five years, if Giannis Antetokounmpo leaves the city of Milwaukee for another basketball team at any point of time, this is going to be ground zero for that, this Malcolm Brogdon decision. Because literally the only thing that was stopping the Bucks from giving him the exact same contract that the Pacers gave him was that the owners didn't want to pay the luxury tax. And I got news for you. If you have the league MVP, that is exactly when you pay the luxury tax because your title window is only so big. Unless you're LeBron James, you're not going to have a 10, 15 year title window, no matter what players on your roster. And you have to maximize the moments that you can potentially get into the title conversation 
and the Bucks decided to let Brogdon go because they didn't want to pay the luxury tax, guess what? If you want to replace him with anyone competent, you're going to have to go into the luxury tax. And if you've decided that you're just not going to go into the luxury tax no matter what, you're pretty much just going to end up wasting Giannis's championship potential. And that would be pretty unfortunate for everyone in the state of Wisconsin. That's why um, the Thunder traded James Harden, right? They were like marginally over the tax and they weren't having it. Basically, they had to decide between trading Serge Ibaka or James Harden to stay out of the tax. And I think they might have chosen wrong on that one. <laughs> oh my God. I think they traded everyone is what happened. <laughs> it just took a little while. Yeah, man, I, I, I totally agree that there's a pretty clear roadmap. We're doing this thing right now with the Warriors, which we'll also get to later. It's like, wow, man, one year, you never really know what's going to happen. But sometimes you kind of do. You see guys get hurt and you're like, yeah, they're going to be worse. It's it's maybe happening in real time with the Bucks right now, but more in a Thunder kind of way where they'll still be competitive for a while, but you know exactly why it's not enough. I just don't understand what the Bucks were thinking in terms of how they were going to improve. I mean, are you just expecting that Chris Middleton is going to make the leap to all NBA player? Because if he doesn't, you're basically just hoping that Giannis has a Dirk in 2011 kind of season and just does absolutely everything that the team needs him to to carry them to a title. But you just got rid of one of your best assets basically just because you weren't willing to consider the luxury tax. Yeah, I think extending Brogdon, not uh, Bledsoe. They extended Bledsoe in like February or something. That's kind of a red flag. That's where you go. I don't know what's going on here. Well, I want to push back on that a bit though, because at the time that they gave him the extension, he was in all-star consideration. I mean, there were talks about whether Bledsoe or Middleton would have been the better pick for the second Bucks all-star. The problem is just that Bledsoe collapsed so pathetically in the playoffs And the problem is that that was the second year in a row that he did that. And honestly, given the time that the Bucks gave him the deal, I don't really have a problem with the Bledsoe deal. What I do have a problem with is using the Bledsoe deal as an excuse to not sign Malcolm Brogdon long term. Yeah, I I kind of have a biased uh, opinion there because, you know, the Bucks played the Celtics two years in a row in the playoffs. They they stomped the Celtics last year because the Celtics were who they were last year. But Bledsoe was okay and then terrible the next series and then the year before that, Bledsoe was just horrible. So we, from from the Celtics fan perspective, you would just never extend a guy like that. Moving on to Kevin Love, who missed almost the entirety of last season. And so far in this young NBA season is second in the league in rebounds behind someone that we will be discussing later in the podcast. But the thing about Kevin Love is that he didn't, fit as well, in my opinion, as a third star as Chris Bosh did in that kind of LeBron plus one other superstar lineup. But now that the team is pretty much running through him again, we are seeing almost all of the things that made him really, really successful in Minnesota. The main difference is just that he's not spending as much time in the post because no one in the NBA spends as much time in the post as they did during Love's top years in Minnesota. But I think that there are still a number of teams that could really use someone like Kevin Love for a playoff push or maybe even a title push. And so I guess the question there becomes, 
at what point does it become worth it for Cleveland to trade him? Because if Love keeps playing this well, I think his contract is going to be viewed less as a negative and more as a decent positive in the right situation. And once they cross that threshold, I don't see why Cleveland wouldn't want to try and trade him. They should definitely try to trade him. They're not really... Like, here's, here's what I think it boils down to. I've watched a little bit of their two guards play. They turn the ball over constantly. And then in the NBA, also, you need some three and D wings. They don't really have those. And they have kind of a sweet front court with, with Love and Thompson, but it just doesn't fit any sort of window. So you can definitely get some picks for Love. I have a feeling Thompson is just going to be in Cleveland forever. He's he's kind of become like their uh, spirit animal or whatever. Yeah, definitely should trade him. I don't even know what the market is right now because all the teams we thought would be good or bad and a lot of teams we thought would be bad or good. So I don't even know who's trying to move what. The Celtics could obviously use a... a We'll call Kevin Love a center for the for the purpose of this, but I don't think they have the contracts for it. So it's one of those things where you can pretty easily point out a few teams and go, yeah, get rid of that guy, but you don't know who can offer up anything to take him. Does that make sense? It does. The team that I've been thinking about for a while with this is Portland, and not just because Love grew up in Oregon, but because that team really needs a third piece until Yusuf Nurkic comes back. The problem is I'm not sure where the trade is between Portland and Cleveland because the Trailblazers have a few young assets that I don't think they're likely to want to get rid of in Zach Collins and Anthony Simons. And if Cleveland isn't getting one of those two guys, I just don't think it's worth it for them. The other team that I think would be really, really interesting is the Clippers because they don't really have much of an interior presence at all. And granted, Kevin Love is not going to be a defensive interior presence, but he is at least going to rebound the ball. And ultimately, when you have Kawhi and Paul George, your defense is not really going to be the concern. So I think that could be interesting as well. The Clippers, sort of similar to the Trailblazers, they don't really have the younger assets that I think Cleveland would need in a Kevin Love trade. But it would be interesting to send him there for sure. And then, of course, the last one that I'm going to throw out because it would be the funniest thing in the entire world is if the Timberwolves trade Andrew Wiggins in a first-round pick for Kevin Love. That would be great. I just um, looked up the Hassan Whiteside contract. He's on the last year of that four-year 98 that he got. Um, so that's $27 million. And I don't know what picks Portland would have to give up, but it's kind of a year where if they had some, some decent picks to give up and maybe a young player, you send the Whiteside contract every asset possible and then you have Lillard McCollum Love. They actually have some great role players. It's kind of been like a redemption month, redemption two weeks for like Hazonia. Rodney Hood was kind of in the playoffs and they had Scal Lebissier, Le Lebissier, <laughs> something like that. There's kind of a redemption project going on over there. So they I don't know, maybe maybe you just ship one of those guys too. Um so I could I could see could see it maybe. Let's move on to Devontae Graham. He has been lighting it up for the Charlotte Hornets, despite coming off the bench behind $57 million man Terry Rozier. At the time of this podcast, Graham is in the top 20 in assists and is just outside the top 10 in three-point makes. It's really interesting to me because I thought that Charlotte would be absolutely unwatchable, and they've been pretty unwatchable. But P.J. Washington and Devontae Graham have been really fun every time I've seen the Hornets. And it's especially funny that Devontae Graham has been so successful to start the year because 
the guy ahead of him in the lineup is certainly going to be the starter going forward in terms of the political aspect of it within the locker room. But it's really funny to watch basically a minimum contract player outplaying Terry Rozier at his position. Yeah, the Hornets are 3-3. Three and three. They have two bench players who just might be their best players that they can't start right away because, like you said, they have guys making way more money on the roster that are going to get all the minutes. I don't know what that's going to turn into because it's not like all the money sunk into Nick Batum is going to start a revolution of like, oh my God, I can't believe you're not starting Nick Batum or Marvin Williams or, or whoever. Rozier's bought himself at least one year of starting. If he stinks all year, then he might he might lose that spot. But uh, it, it's like there's it feels like there's no pressure to start anybody on this team. So I just don't know where you go. I don't know where you go with that. I think there's kind of pressure to start PJ Washington because he's kind of the new it thing down there, especially given that Miles Bridges has been a little disappointing. He's been solid for them, but he hasn't been the kind of breakout player they needed. I guess actually in hindsight, he's a pretty decent value for the 12th overall pick, but really the Hornets just don't have much to hope for. And Devontae Graham being really surprisingly good early on is at least a little bit of hope for the Queen City fans. Yeah, I just, I think I was watching them play the Lakers and it was just like, I couldn't understand how either team, just do you just feel like neither team should win? <laughs> That's how I felt. I've watched six Kings games this season. Of course I know how that feels. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, the Hornets are weird to me because like you said, I thought they would be very easily in the bottom three teams in the league and they're, they're three and three and I still think the roster is terrible, but the Knicks and the Wizards and the Bulls have been so unbelievably bad. Let's move on to talking about someone who I'm sure you're going to be very happy to discuss. Currently leading the NBA in steals is rookie Matisse Thibel of the Philadelphia 76ers, who was traded to the Sixers from Boston in return for, I believe, Grant Williams and Carson Edwards, or rather the picks that eventually became Grant Williams and Carson Edwards. The thing about Thibel for me is... He reminds me a lot of Tony Allen in the sense of exceptional defensive player with pretty much no offensive game. He at least was a theoretically better three-point shooter than Tony Allen in terms of his college attempts and makes, even though his percentage went down in his senior year. The thing for me with Tybal is that I think that the NBA of right now is a lot less able to accommodate that kind of Tony Allen player than it was 10 years ago. So even if he's got the same kind of skill set as Tony Allen, I think that kind of player is a lot harder to get on the court now than they would have been back when there were offensive zeros on the court each night that you could get away with as long as they were playing well enough defensively. Yeah, we extorted Philadelphia for so many picks that like I can't even be mad that Tybal's good. So I, I've actually watched a bunch of Sixers this year, and his his perimeter defense is actually ridiculous. And I think where those steals are coming from is maybe transition kind of fast break defense i have not seen a transition defender as good as matisse thibel since danny green yeah the ball just ends up he's just there i don't even know <laughs> it's like not a very complicated process the ball gets turned over and some guys just kind of jogging it up looking for a teammate and then he just doesn't have the ball anymore it's not like they get tangled or he has to dive on the floor he, it's he just walks up and takes the ball away and makes it look really easy i was gonna say just as as you were kind of alluding to the 76ers do not have any spacing at all. I don't understand how they didn't lose a game yesterday. 
they're they're five and zero, oh, so maybe it'll just never matter that they can't shoot because they've beat some decent teams. Um, but yeah, Tybalt Tybalt's really good. This is a trend I don't think is going to stop. He's going to keep getting steals all year. It kind of reminds me of the time that Kawhi Leonard kind of ended Ben McElmore's career when he just took the ball away from him on consecutive possessions, like he was taking it from a twelve-year-old. And that's kind of how it feels when I'm watching Tybalt just. Especially the one that I really think of with this is DeAndre Hunter was dribbling the ball up court and Thibault just kind of walks in behind him and just swipes the ball away like Hunter wasn't even there. And that's the kind of stuff that can keep you on the floor even if you can't score at all. But who knows, maybe that's just going to kind of be how it is in Philadelphia this year. It kind of makes you wonder, like between him... So, like I was saying this about Marcus Smart last season, he was the only guy, and now Thibault would be the second guy that I'm aware of, the only two players I've ever seen just simply walk up to a player and just take the ball away. Yeah, that's what I meant with the Kawhi Ben McElmore thing because that, that I watched and that was really unfortunate. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Kawhi did it a couple times. So he's just so smart as a defender already. He has the greenest of green lights to shoot, which makes Philadelphia kind of worse. But no, he's for real. He's for real on defense just by watching him. Speaking of for real on defense... We referenced him earlier. Andre Drummond is once again leading the league in rebounding, but the more underrated part of his stat line so far is he's actually currently third in the league in steals. And granted, blocks and steals aren't necessarily indicative of good defense. Obviously, we just talked about someone for whom steals are very indicative of their good defense. But the thing with Drummond for me is that he's always had the athleticism to be a spectacular defender. And He's just taken a decent amount of time to sort of come along in terms of positioning on that end of the floor, but he's gotten much better in that regard. And I think that after his first All-Star game, he kind of got overrated by a lot of the league. And now I think he's almost back to being underrated because people just sort of assume that he doesn't really try on defense other than just trying to grab as many rebounds as he can. He's been good on that end for the Pistons so far. And his offense has been much better than it used to be. He's gotten so much better as a passer, so much better in terms of decision-making about when to shoot versus, you know, not trying to throw up wild hooks in the post. His free throw percentage has gone from maybe historically the worst free throw shooter ever to below average, which is a dramatic, dramatic jump. And the Pistons are currently three and four. And honestly, if Drummond hadn't been playing the way he'd been playing so far, I think we might be talking about the Pistons with the Knicks and the Wizards of the world because they haven't had Blake Griffin yet. And them without Blake Griffin being anywhere near 500 is really a testament to how well Drummond has played so far. I feel like I've seen spurts of this out of Drummond throughout his career where it looks like he can be a guy to at least grab like four or five assists per game and sort of not be an Al Horford playmaking big, but just you can trust him enough to give him the ball kind of at the top and, and let him work it out. But I also feel like I see really, really long stretches where he just is terrible. And as far as overrated, underrated, it's hard to say because it, it just feels like such a flip-flop thing his whole career where the Pistons get hot. They randomly make the playoffs sometimes. I bet no non-Pistons fans can remember the playoff years versus non-playoff years because it feels so inconsistent. Or I'm just making that up. But <laughs> he's uh, it kind of just felt like he's been the same player every single year. And it's the team around him that fluctuates. And then it all just gets thrown at his reputation, even though 
generally he's like a 2010 guy who has a lot of 2020 games. And every now and then he gets like a bunch of blocks and steals and stuff. But um, Detroit, I was going to say they've had this thing. They With Dwayne Casey as a coach, this has changed. But they, they tried to run the offense through non-point guards a lot, I think. I remember they really wanted Avery Bradley to be that guy. And I think that basically cost Stan Van Gundy his job. And now, ideally, I think you want every center to be able to pass, which maybe he can do it. But I just can't help but think in a month, we're going to be sitting here going, remember when Andre Drummond was good and the Pistons were almost good? And then somehow they're going to be like 5-11. and Just be like, all right, that was that. I think the thing with Drummond is that he really had the best couple months of his career right before the Pistons traded for Blake Griffin and Drummond had the ball in his hands a lot more. And maybe it's something along the lines of he can get disengaged if he's not involved in the offense enough. And that certainly would explain why his defense has been so solid to start the year because he has been involved more in the offense. And again, maybe it's just that he's had a hot stretch. But really, I think the main difference for me is that I think he was kind of always this player on offense, other than obviously improving his free throw shooting. And I think his passing is a lot better than it used to be. Really, for me, it's just that he's looked so much more attentive and so much better positioned on the defensive end. And hopefully that's the kind of thing that he can continue to have in his toolbox when Blake Griffin is back and kind of running the show. But In terms of non-point guards running the offense for Detroit, I think a lot more of that has to do with the fact that Reggie Jackson was the point guard, less than sort of anything else going on there. I have to retract one of my statements because I looked up what years they made the playoffs after I kind of made a bold claim about it's hard to remember. Their year-by-year record actually is terrible basically every season since 2008-2009. They made the playoffs in 15-16, lost in the first round, missed the next two years, and then lost in the first round again. So... Probably everyone knew that except for me. Let's talk about some of the teams that have been standouts in the small sample size to start the season. And the place to start here is with the Minnesota Timberwolves. They're currently tied for the top spot in the Western Conference, which certainly no one expected coming into the season. I don't think there were all that many people that even thought this team would be a playoff contender. But... Really, it just comes down to Carl Anthony Towns, who had a spectacular two months to close out the season last year, having maybe even a better start to this season in Minnesota. And the Joel Embiid incident was, let's just say, interesting. But other than that, you really couldn't have asked for much more out of Carl Anthony Towns to start the season. All the cat highlights I've seen are him taking like James Harden step back threes, like a little crossover, hand in his face, step back behind the arc and drill it. So if he's got that, like if he's really got that, then he basically has every possible shot you could have on offense. And I've heard also he's just been passable on defense, which his defense going from what it was to passable is the same as Drummond's free throw percentage going from what it was to also passable, kind of the same gap. He was passable sort of to close out the year last year. I think he's been, I wouldn't say good, but he's been right around average for the last year and a half or so. And maybe in the first few games to start this year, he's gone from about average to slightly above average. But you're right. Either way, average or slightly above average, as long as it's not abysmal, he's going to be a really, 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 really good player. That's really super obvious. I think maybe the better way to say that is 
he probably has a lock on an all NBA spot for the next five years. I can agree with that. The other thing I've seen is Wiggins is shooting a ton of threes, which um, it seems that players are kind of resistant to be told like, hey, the math works out if you shoot from different places. But if you shoot a bunch of long range twos versus a bunch of threes, whether or not it's a great shot for you, again, just the math makes so much more sense to take one step back and then maybe get an entire (laughs) another point added on. It's like so disproportionate how like the difficulty increase from a long two to a three is like nothing, but the result is like a huge difference. So it, it seems like they just kind of sold them on taking smart shots. As far as, you know, I think the, the, the ceiling for Minnesota for both Towns and Wiggins is just mentally, can they stay locked in for 82 games? I'd be personally surprised if they did just based on history, but sometimes we write off guys too early and these guys are both still in their mid twenties, I think at most. So It'll work out. I, I doubt they win a playoff series, but it's cool that they're decent, maybe. I'm kind of willing to mostly write off Andrew Wiggins at this point, honestly. <laughs> I will say this. It has been encouraging that he has been willing to take more shots from three-point range. But honestly, if he doesn't do anything other than score, if he goes from scoring really inefficiently to scoring at about average efficiency... If he continues to not do anything else, I'm not really sure how much of a difference that makes. Yeah, I mean, it feels unfair, but also it just feels entirely justified to assume that he's still who he is. I just feel like mentally that's like a a mental hurdle to me is something that most players don't get over. Even, you know, you can teach anyone to shoot and slide their feet on defense, but if he's not like, like has, has he dove on the floor for a loose basketball? When I see, okay, this is the only stat I care about now. If Andrew Wiggins dives on the floor for a loose ball, then I'm in. And until then, I don't care. So in other words, you're never going to care? Probably not. I will say in Wiggins' defense that Tom Thibodeau became the coach of the Minnesota Timberwolves at the absolute worst possible time for Andrew Wiggins' development. But Ryan Saunders is the coach that he's always gotten along with and a coach who is there almost exclusively as a developmental coach, obviously the youngest coach in the NBA by a pretty significant margin. So I think that I would be willing to give Andrew Wiggins this season to figure it out. And after that, I'm all the way off the wagon. But I mean, he's shooting 28% from three. So even if he's taking more of those mid-range shots as threes, 28% from three is still not going to cut it. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But um I don't know if I if I were a Minnesota fan, I'd almost be okay with it. Just if it if it meant some way somehow you can get it to thirty three and a half percent, that that's that's close enough that it's in uh, it's kind of in the right ballpark. Shout out to hashtag basketball writer Tyler Metcalf, who is literally the only human being still left on Andrew Wiggins Island. Wow, cheap real estate. Let's move on to talking about the title defenses. And I think coming into the season, people were saying, don't write off the Warriors just yet. And on the flip side, we're saying maybe Toronto is going to blow this thing up for parts once we get a couple games into the season. Yet right now, the Raptors are currently tied with the Milwaukee Bucks for fourth in the Eastern Conference. And the Golden State Warriors are currently in the basement of the Western Conference and in many ways, the basement of the league. So it's been wild to me. I think I was a little bit more in on Toronto than most people coming into this season. But 
the difference has been so much more stark than I think anyone expected between the two title defending teams, neither of which seem particularly likely to be in the title picture this season. Yeah, the Warriors are literally roadkill, so I don't know if there's anything else needed to be said there. Toronto is another roster that just kind of makes sense, even though I don't know that it'll stay what it is past this year. Some of their pieces that you could theoretically move might be too expensive to do it, but um, good point guard. They have Siakam, who can basically might as well play any position at this point. They have a couple good forwards. They have a streaky shooter, Van Vliet off the bench. They just, you know, checks checks all their boxes uh, as far as positions. Plays super hard. I value that a lot. And uh, the East is, again, not good, just crowded. So they'll they'll be up there. They'll be, I think, top four. Miami's four and one at number two right now. I think I still think Philly, Boston, Milwaukee, Toronto would be the top four. But yeah, they just have a roster that makes sense, which is better than half the league on its own. I think the thing with Toronto is that even if they were going to blow it up, I think the question is how. Because there's absolutely no circumstance under which it's worth it to trade Pascal Siakam, especially after giving him that max contract extension. And so then at that point, you're looking to move Kyle Lowry, who's, I mean, the franchise hero, kind of, or Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka, and I don't know how much you're going to get for them. So really, there was a lot of talk about, oh, blow it up, blow it up, blow it up. But the question that I don't think I thought about enough with the Toronto team is how? How do you blow that team up in a way that actually gets you something useful? And I think ultimately it's going to be better for them to just see whether Siakam is a fringe all-star or future all-NBA player. And I think given how spectacular he's been to start the season, it might be closer to the latter than the former, at which point you're going to be near the bottom of the playoff picture with basically Siakam and nothing else. And if that's the case, then you're actually hurting the team by blowing it up because you're getting yourself into that eighth seed, ninth seed, 10th seed, quote unquote, treadmill of mediocrity area. Yeah, I just think like if they just ride this out, it just feels like a bunch of contracts end, which sometimes isn't the worst thing if you can get free agents, but you're Toronto, which it's really hard to get free agents. I would just think you would be, you would, you would want to be really good again in three or four years if you were them. So however however you can get that done, which would be kind of trading guys off for parts. I just don't know. Like I said, I think that it's just too expensive. So something something just has to break their way. I do think Siakam's just absurdly good. And if he's not like an on an all NBA team, he'll be, you know, like one of the last guys cut from third team or whatever. The Miami Heat. Jimmy Butler missed a few games early in the season to be at the birth of his daughter and to spend time with his daughter shortly after she was born. And despite the fact that the Heat were missing their only all-star slash all-NBA player for a couple of games, they are currently 4-1 and one and tied with your Boston Celtics for second in the Eastern Conference. I think that I expected Miami to be closer to the bottom of the playoff picture than the top. And given how the East has looked so far this year, given how Tyler Harrow has looked really good for a rookie, given that Kendrick Nunn has been a serious find in terms of their rotation, I think this team might end up competing for home court advantage in the playoffs. And ultimately, given you've said a lot how crowded the Eastern Conference is, and I do agree, but I think that Miami is kind of on the fringe of being out of that morass. I think they're closer to the 
Philly, Toronto, Milwaukee, upper echelon of the conference, then the Detroit kind of fighting for one of the last seeds in the playoffs level. Yeah, it's another, I know I've said this too much probably by now, but it's another roster that just makes sense. A lot of these teams, I'll just throw a name out there. The Knicks roster doesn't make sense, right? Wait, are you telling me that the Knicks didn't have a good free agency <laughs> plan? It, this So <laughs> between the Heat and the Knicks, right, you're seeing the difference between having 17 power forwards as your roster and having actually like a player at each position. And Miami didn't even do anything. They did a good job uh, drafting Hero, but for the most part, they signed a lot of mediocre contracts over the years, traded some guys, developed their draft picks. They just kind of did a really standard, boring, let's just hope our players are good and then sign one good player. And it works. Sometimes it just works. So, yeah, I think if 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 they stay this good, there's a very clear top five, which is kind of how it's ordered right now with Philly, Miami, Boston, Milwaukee, Toronto, in some order. And then the next, like, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe ten will be crowded. Maybe even 11th if the if the Nets, I don't know. Are the Nets even good? I don't know. But, yeah, Miami actually seems pretty legit. I think the Nets will hang around the playoff picture. I certainly don't think that the Wizards or the Knicks have any chance whatsoever at competing for the playoffs. But let's move on to another one of those teams that's near the top of the East. And I'm sure you will just be devastated to talk about the fact that the Boston Celtics are 4-0 and since their rough opening loss to the Philadelphia 76ers. And I'll be honest, I was expecting the Celtics to be kind of a middling playoff team once I saw that beatdown that they got at the hands of Philadelphia. But they've been really good since then. And ultimately, given that the Sixers are still undefeated, I think that's a loss that you can live with. Yeah, I actually thought the Celtics would look a lot worse too. It's worth noting we beat the Knicks twice, but it's also worth noting it's not actually easy to beat the Knicks. The Knicks just don't have a way to win. Like it, it kind of makes sense that a game that goes down to its last few position or possessions, the Knicks would lose because how are they going to win? But um, yeah, beating Toronto and in Milwaukee is super nice. And I, you know, I basically everything I've written about the Celtics has come down to the same few factors where a lot of stuff just has to break the right way for them to be good. And so far, it kind of has. They need Hayward to look healthy. Hayward looks great. They have like seven centers you just need a couple of them to be good and you drafted a ton of rookies where again you just need a couple of them to look good or have like a second year player be good so grant williams has already become like uh who looks like could be a staple rotation player because he's such a good defender and he's a good passer and maybe the shot will come along and robert williams who i hadn't been high on really ever actually has played some decent rotation minutes where he still makes just God awful mistakes trying to guard guys. But again, it's just like a whole long laundry list of things. It's like, well, if Hayward can be good, maybe if Williams, if both Williams can play some rotation minutes, then we could start talking about really competing. And so far, a lot of things are breaking in the right direction. So it might just be the case that the Celtics are really good. It's funny that you mentioned how they have seven centers because I've kind of been more comfortable with them in the Grant Williams at center minutes than any of the other center minutes, just because the centers that they have they have a bunch of them but they're all really flawed in very different ways and ultimately i think that as you mentioned grant is probably going to play the most mistake free defense out of their center roster but he's just so small to play that big and really the question with the celtics is going to be can the rest of their sort of emergency rotation crew at center patch things over for long enough tice is pretty good at center 
Kanner's been awful and injured. So there will be some matchups where Kanner's good and then every other matchup he stinks. So I think we just kind of have to endure that. But, um, you know, in in Marcus Smart's earlier, like his first couple years, everyone was tired of the... If if you've been on like NBA Twitter for a few years, you know everyone hated Celtics fans more than usual because we were saying Marcus Smart's like the soul of a team and he's incredible. And he was probably averaging like nine points, four rebounds or something. Grant Williams is the next that guy. The the stats really aren't going to be there. He's not going to play starter minutes, but he, he's just so incredibly smart as a player. And like every rebound he's going to grab is going to be super hard fought. He's going to take charges which aren't going to show up on any box score. And it's it's just like just where he is right now is not like an astronomically high workload. And if he can just sustain what he's been doing, it's like such a huge difference. Uh, kind of to me, you know, because I thought, like you said, they could be like a middling playoff team. I really do think his skill set is the kind of thing that moves the needle, even if it's in a really subtle Al Horford kind of way. From talking about your favorite team in a very positive light to talking about my favorite team, really hard to talk about these Sacramento Kings in any kind of positive light to start the season. But something that I've seen a lot of around the basketball internet is people just talking about, oh, the Kings have played so terribly on defense. Oh, their offense has been so stagnant. Here's the thing about the Kings season so far. They were leading at halftime in their opening night game against Phoenix, and they lost that game by almost 30 points. They were tied with the Trailblazers at halftime of their second game. They got absolutely housed by the Jazz in their third game, but they were up on the Nuggets in their fourth game, and they were up on the Hornets in their fifth game at halftime. And every single one of those times, they have played a decent but kind of mistake-prone first half and just a miserable, miserable second half. Pace not moving at all, ball not moving at all, just a whole bunch of isolations on the offensive end and absolutely no effort on the defensive end. So on the one hand, it's really discouraging that the Kings brought in a new head coach and immediately are getting destroyed by every team in the league out of halftime especially since, you know, halftime adjustments are one of the big ways in which a coach can make a difference to a team's level of play. So those kind of starts to games have been really difficult to watch, given that the second half collapse is going to be coming pretty much any time an opposing coach has the opportunity to scheme against the current Kicks head coach. But on the other hand, they did have a really solid win against the Jazz in their last game after the embarrassing performance in their third game against Utah. So. Trends are positive for Sacramento, but really given the halftime disasters for this team every single time, makes me very concerned about the coaching situation. And granted, I've been speaking out against the coaching decision since the Kings fired Dave Yeager last April, but it has not been a good start from the head man on the bench for the Kings. I just don't know where this bad karma came from where the Celtics have your pick last year and you become like the surprise team and we got the pick for free anyway. So whatever. But now we don't have your pick and you're like the worst team ever. You hire this coach It is I'm trying to remember you guys had Mike Malone right before Jaeger. Is that accurate? Well, it was Mike Malone and then he got fired and then it was Ty Corbin and then it was George Carl, which was 
the worst of them, which is shocking because <laughs> Tyrone Corbin is an abysmal coach. It's amazing to me that the Kings had a worse coach than Ty Corbin in the last five years. But anyway, they went from Carl to Jaeger, and Jaeger had the team playing their best basketball in a decade, and then they fired him and hired the guy from Los Angeles. Not great. So, yeah, what I'm just trying to – because the only thing I think there is to talk about is the coaching because you guys ran back the same team. Was there like a difference in philosophy from the, you know, was this over like a draft pick that got Dave Yeager fired or what's... It's really actually kind of sad, the whole situation. So last year, Dave Yeager had an issue with Brandon Williams, the assistant GM for the Kings, because Williams had basically been campaigning to get Yeager fired behind the scenes. And there was a whole kerfuffle where Jaeger wouldn't let Brandon Williams sit in on the Kings practice. And there was a whole sort of set of disagreements about that. So if it was a personality thing where they felt like Jaeger couldn't get along with them, that makes a lot more sense than anything basketball related because he was really, really good at the basketball stuff. But then they fired Brandon Williams as well. (laughs) So maybe... Vladi, I think really what it boils down to is just that Vladi thought that the coach that the Lakers had was the right coach for the King situation. And it was pretty clear that he was going to lose his job in Los Angeles due to incompetence. So the Kings, of course, had to hire him immediately after firing Dave Yeager. I don't know. It's upsetting. Yeah, everyone on the Lakers, everyone on the Lakers is constantly trying to get each other fired. Luke Walton knows all about it. I don't know. I I mean, that probably has something to do with him being hired. He was probably hired because he exists and he's a coach. But like, I I really can't make sense of it, to be honest with you. Well, that makes two of us. Is there anything sort of, (laughs) is there any sort of tangible non-coaching difference? Because I I, I mean, you guys do have basically, there's no, there's no Collie Stein, who you probably like more than I did. Uh, But besides that, is, is, is it, is it purely coaching? Is there some sort of like material player underachieving or some other thing? So the free agents that we brought in this last offseason, with the exception of Rashawn Holmes, who's been exceptional and very fun to watch. Deadman has been disappointing. Corey Joseph has been really disappointing. Trevor Ariza, I just don't understand why the Kings paid him that money after his play last season in Phoenix and Washington. And the even more troubling part is that his head coach seems to have forgotten that 11 years have passed since they played together on the Lakers championship teams. Trevor Ariza is not the same player he was in 2009, but the Kings coach certainly thinks he is. All the Everyone you just named is every free agent where I'm like, I'm pretty sure that guy's in the league, but I don't know where he is. It's the Kings bench. The Kings bench is everyone you don't know where they went. Yeah. <laughs> I will say Rashawn Holmes has been really fun. I've been advocating for the Celtics to somehow get Rashawn Holmes for literally four years, I think. Every single year he's in some way available. I'm like, we need him and we never get him. But hey, maybe this year, maybe we swindle you guys. We're good at that. Certainly wouldn't be the first time that someone has swindled Vladi Divots. Let's move on to a more positive discussion, which is pretty much any team in the league would be a more positive discussion than talking to a Kings fan about the Kings right now. But the Phoenix Suns started the season 4-2. and two. They started the season by absolutely housing the Kings in the second half of their opening night game after, again, just a reminder, being down to the Kings five points at halftime. Anyway, the Suns have also beaten the Los Angeles Clippers. One of their two losses was a one-point loss. And really the thing with Phoenix is that they have competent professionals at point guard and center. And 
Last year, they had a very raw talent at center in DeAndre Ayton, but certainly not someone who had figured out the league on both ends of the floor in the kind of way that Aaron Baines has. And their point guard play was non-existent. I don't think a single one of their point guards from last season is on an NBA roster right now, period, which kind of says a lot about the quality of point guard play they had there. And now they have Ricky Rubio, who's not exactly someone who's going to set the league on fire, but he's a really smart player. He's fallen off a bit on the defensive end since his peak years in Minnesota, but he's still solid there. And just having a competent professional running the point guard position makes such a difference for this Phoenix team. Yeah, to me, this is the least surprising surprise. Like Minnesota being 4-1, and one, that's surprising to me. The Spurs being 4-1, and one, like uh, I mean, of course they are, but still surprising to me. The Suns, you just know, they have five guys, at least, who just know how to play basketball on the court. I- I've always liked Rubio, mostly because he's a-, a-, a defender that can pass. I've liked Dario Saric ever since Philadelphia th- deemed it necessary to trade every good asset they have for two players and not resign one of those players. I like Baines because he played for the Celtics. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just, there nothing about it is like really exceptional, but they have guys who just kind of know how to score and know how to play defense. I think you covered it pretty well. And now the Chicago Bulls, who their record looks a little bit better after they eked out a win over the Pistons on Friday night. But this was a team that I thought could be a fringe playoff contender in the Eastern Conference. And so far to start the season, they have done absolutely nothing to inspire any of that sort of confidence in me. Yeah, I really talked myself in. Well, when we were writing our first power rankings, I I really talked myself into like, look, maybe you can't defend, but you can win all your games, like not all your games, but you can win like 118 to 110. That's an acceptable thing to do. And uh, there's just no, there's just no direction. It's how I feel about a lot of teams that are struggling right now is they have, it's not even that they have the worst players. Same thing with the Nets, right? Same thing with the Magic. There's just no, you, you just watch them play offense. And it, as opposed to like running, running things, they're just taking turns with the ball until there's not that much time left. And then someone has to shoot. That's kind of how I see those teams operate. So I don't, I don't know where you go from there, probably because I'm not a coach <laughs> for good reason. But um, you're about as much of a coach as Jim Boylan is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, actually, that's a good point. Boylan has been it's it's really easy as a professional athlete or this is the one thing that I'll ever say is easy to just say the right things. You know, oh, we, uh, you know, we struggled. We we're going to we're going to watch the film. We're going to Jim Boylan doesn't say anything that I that I that is deemed. All I hear about is they run a million suicides at practice. I think I have the right coach in mind. They practice super hard, but not really productively. And the, it just seems like from the top down, the Bulls don't have an infrastructure that that supports player growth and encouragement. Jim Boylan is pretty much the definition of the OK Boomer meme. <laughs> He's like your high school like gym coach where you're like, oh, we need a coach this year. Here's this guy. He's the 5'5", 300-pound gym coach who tells you that you have to keep running because you haven't run enough yet. Pretty much. Is is there is there a path for the Bulls? to get better because I feel like it has to be right now. They pay Levine. They drafted Markinen. People seem to like Wendell Carter Jr. quite a bit. It just seems like they filled out a roster. They fired their coach and got a new one, and they still stink. So is this it? The path for the Bulls is exactly the same as the path for the Knicks, which is that there isn't a path until the owner and front office leave. So 
Really, if you're in New York or Chicago, you got to be hoping that James Dolan or Jerry Reinsdorf says something really racist in a private recorded conversation <laughs> so that they can Donald Sterling him out of the league. I actually have to retract one of my statements because I'm really smart. I was saying like, hey, you can just win all your games 118 to 110. But when I think about teams kind of building from within and, and just sort of expanding, you look at the Celtics, you can even look at the Sixers in the same light. It really does start with defense. You need guys who just aren't going to get blown away by competent offensive players. And then you can add some shooters. The Celtics started with defense. The 76ers very clearly did not start with shooting. Uh, and then and then you can you can work from there. So... I don't know how Chicago will stumble into people who are good at defense, but yeah, they're actually that that franchise is in trouble. Except it's not going to change. All right, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? I don't think so. I just was really happy that the Nets aren't that good. That makes me feel good inside. What a way to end the podcast, right there, from a Boston fan. Yeah, I uh, did. You think maybe because what the what the Suns are is what I thought the Knicks would almost b you look at the roster and you go yeah these guys have played professional basketball for a few years and so sure right and it's just why why is why is new york this bad they're bad just why are they this bad (laughs) is is it just like it's just a curse it's just because he's there it's two reasons reason one is james and reason two is dolan it's just because he doesn't let people do his job because he's james dolan and so they make a bunch of incredibly short-term focused moves that don't work out and then as soon as those incredibly short-term focus moves that don't work out, fail to work out, as you know they always do, the Knicks pivot to their fans and say, oh, but wait until free agency next year. Oh, but wait until free agency two years from now. The Knicks issued a statement about how poorly their free agency went on day one. Do you realize how pathetic that is? <laughs> Literally the first day. <laughs> it's interesting because they, they were like, well, we didn't really want those guys anyway. And a few weeks ago... Kyrie and Durant were both like, well, we didn't really want to be there anyway. And I, I, it, it, it feels like a chicken and the egg. Two teams destined for each other, not wanting each other. But I don't know. I thought Alfred Payton, RJ Barrett's actually really good. And then a bunch of bullies. Just thought it would work. Just thought it would make sense. It, I thought they would be better than the Wizards and the Bulls. And they're not. Which to me is shocking to not be playing better than those two teams right now. RJ Barrett is really good. And as a native New Yorker, I just pray that they don't ruin him, but I don't think the odds on that are very good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the Nuggets should be better. I don't know if I have a lot to say about the Nuggets, but doesn't it feel like they should be better? I will have a lot to say about the Nuggets when we release our hashtag basketball power rankings in a day. And I think there is no better place than that to wrap up. So Jeremy, thank you very much for your time. You can find his work on Celtics blog and also on the hashtag basketball website. And you can find him on Twitter at taco underscore house. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can find my written work on the hashtag basketball website as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback of any kind, please feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.